Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. This one is episode 69, and to be honest with you guys, I had some big plans for this one. This one was going to be the UFO episode, and I was going to have interviews with some people that I'm dying to talk to. It was definitely going to be way off topic, but it's our show, and something tells me the next 6,000 podcasts are going to be about mountain bikes, so who cares? But if there's one thing I'm really good at, it's procrastinating. So here we are doing another mountain bike podcast instead of talking about aliens, Casimir. I'm sorry, everybody. We are going to do that UFO podcast at some point, I promise. So stay tuned for that. And if you've seen some weird shit in the sky, tell me about it in the comments. Mike Casimir is here. Kaz, speaking of weird shit, I'm excited for today's podcast. We're going to be talking about some of the weird very strange bikes we've owned over the years. And in hindsight, some of them are pretty questionable. I'm not sure what we were thinking back then, Kaz. Yeah, for sure. And I think, especially you, you've got some very special specimens we can dig into. And it's gonna be a good one. I can make a lot of fun of you. So <laughs> I feel like, Kaz, you're gonna be super mean about this, about me and my old bike. So I brought Sarah Moore here. Sarah is gonna bring the positive vibes. She's also gonna judge these things. But before we get to that, Sarah, what's the scariest bike you've ever owned? I did buy a BMX bike at one point, and that just like going back and forth between the little wheels and big wheels <laughs> is really scary and I think slightly dangerous if you're not used to it. You know why, right? It's because you're an adult. <laughs> yeah. Those are children's <laughs> bikes almost. Yeah, I should have bought it when I was like eight, but I bought it when I was, you know, 25. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to all the BMXers out there, all the people that ride BMX bikes, because that is all the skill is required, eh, Kaz? It's very hard. Yeah, I tried to have one for a couple of years and I'm not good on the BMX. Yeah, not so much. All right, Sarah is going to read the news for us today. But before we get to that, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss that upcoming UFO episode and give us a 10 out of 10 rating so it looks like I'm doing a good job. Sarah? What's going on with mountain bike news? Well, it seems like every week we've got a couple new bikes, so this week's no different. We've got the new Cannondale Jekyll. So it's kind of always been a bike that stands out from the enduro crowd, and this new iteration is no different. It takes some design cues from that two-shock downhill bike we saw Cannondale testing a couple of years ago. But this is a high pivot with a shock house and a split down tube called the Gravity Cavity. Just one <laughs> second. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Gravity Cavity. And I like Kaz wrote in his, in his article. It's, you know, what's better, three-letter acronyms or rhyming? I don't know. They're both pretty, pretty Rhyming. Because awesome. they're kind yeah. of making fun of it, I feel like, too, you know? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I kind of grew on me over a while, but yeah. So geometry-wise, this is probably what you call contemporary rather than boundary pushing. But for a bike that has racing ambitions, that might not be such a bad thing. Kaz, how did you get along with this one? I got along well. I've actually had this bike for, I think, going on three months now. So it's probably been the bike I've ridden the most for this uh, this springtime. So um, they did a good job with it. Like the old Jekyll, let's see, two generations ago, the Jekyll was kind of more on the fun, playful bike. that had super short chainstays and kind of a goof-off bike. And then they made it have bigger wheels and longer chain stays. And that one is kind of like a, a neutral bike. And this one, definitely more of a, a race oriented bike or just for smashing things. Um, I think they did a good job making it stand out, but it's also not a crazy bike to ride. Like it, it rides well, it's solid. Um, a few little quirks, but it wouldn't be a Cannondale without them. Kaz, you've been riding this thing for a while and we've been chatting about it every now and then for the last couple of weeks. And you've mentioned that it's fast as hell. Uh, what 
do you think helps with that? What do you think makes it quick, easy to ride fast, I should say? Yeah, I mean, I think they've got that. I mean, the high pivot helps to some extent. It's not a crazy rearward axle path. Like, it's more rearward than your typical horse link bike would be. Um, but I think that helps. I mean, maybe that low shock placement, lower center gravity could help too. But um, yeah, definitely. It's one of those bikes that makes you want to ride fast. Some of that could be the shock tune also. It's not super, I wouldn't say it's super floaty or super supple off the top. But when you start going faster, um, kind of feels like it opens up and feels better. So I think it's got a little a firmer compression tune that I might like, but that does encourage you to just hit stuff harder. So that probably speed focused then you would say, yeah, I'd say more speed focus. And it's not the bike you would want for like your mellow chill trail rides. Yeah. Proprietary stuff. No, not too much. I think the rear wheel might still have that AI, um, offset, like maybe six mils offset dish, but you could, you could run a regular wheel without even redishing it. I think it would fit just fine. Um, and then what else they have now yeah, there's no lefty to see, be seen it's more moderately normal yeah i mean like the gravity cavity is a standout feature there and you know it doesn't like dirt, so. dirt in the gravity cavity yeah i did my very first ride i was riding on like a gravel road getting up the trails and this one little rock popped in there and it just rattled around like a like a maraca i was just like oh flip <laughs> so <laughs> like, it upside down and shake it so it came out so. <laughs> but that only happened once i think it was kind of rare but it could happen so that was one of the cons i said like and in like super muddy conditions dirt can like get in there but if it was me i would just drill a hole in the bottom of that plastic guard and let stuff drain out a little easier yeah idler it's a high pivot with an idler any issues whatsoever with that idler yeah well first when the first when the bike first came the chain was too short and i didn't really notice it because i just built it up and i that could I be bad i'm supposed to check but i didn't check and then i and it was super loud and grindy i was like oh this is the loudest idler ever and i realized the chain was too short so i put a longer chain on and that helped but uh you do get a decent amount of noise on this one in the easiest gear and i some of that might be that 52 tooth cassette so that chain line it's like a pretty extreme angle um it's not bad in the middle of the cassette and obviously when you're going downhill you don't notice it at all but if you're on like a, a longer dirt road climb, you can kind of hear that noise. Yeah. I got, I have one last question for you before we move on. How would you compare this thing to the cabins that you were riding? Also high pivot, fast bike. Yeah. The cabins was a little bit, I'd say it's a little quicker in the tight stuff, a uh, little shorter chain stays on that cabins. And the cabins also had a coil shock, which I really liked the way that the, it made that bike feel. Um, so yeah, this one I'd say more, Candle's a little more planted, a little more kind of like smashed. Planted is such a dumb word. I'm not even going to use planted, but more Are muted. Are banning planted? <laughs> I almost need to. Like, I need a different word for it, but it's hard to explain. It's a descriptive word that works, but it gets used Stable. so much. Stable. I love the, yeah. the little, I, I call them like planted ones, and then Taj threw a little photo, like a little, a little like picture of me as a plant on a bike. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little caricature of planted. So every yeah. time you use but, the word planted, you can think of that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think the ca- the cabins with that coil shock had a little bit more grip and it was a little easier in like the tight technical stuff where the Candale feels a little bit more stable at higher speeds. Um, mm-hmm. And it wants to carve bigger arcs where the cabins could kind of like wiggle around a little better. There's another new bike from Norco mm-hmm. that we haven't oh, got shit. to yet. So another high pivot enduro bike with 170 millimeters of travel. How does that one compare to all these other high pivot bikes? That one's my favorite so far. It's really good. But- taking it for the mic yeah. versus mic here <laughs> yeah it that bike that's a bike that i've kind of wanted all these bikes to feel like like it's super just tons of grip and the speed you can carry on that is pretty insane because it calms everything down to like just an yeah a really impressive level uh it is a little heavy i think that one 
Well, they sent it with wheels that weren't exactly right for it, but I think it's going to end up in the 36 to 37 pound range. So not a lot like that shore. Exactly. It's not far from the shore. And this has a carbon frame, um, but they gave it a slack head angle. It's like a 63 degree head angle. Um, what else is that? 480 reach and 442 chain stays for a size large. So all like modern numbers, but it can just go so fast and super smooth. Is it the kind of bike that you have to ride it fast for it to feel good? Not necessarily. Like I wouldn't say this. I think it's ha- because it's got that coil shock. I think that helps keep it like nice and supple. So even on slower speeds, you can just feel it's like gripping the ground. And like this would be an ideal, like their launch video. I think they filmed it up in Pemberton, but I could see this being amazing Pemberton bike. We have like rough, steep trails and a little bit quicker. It'd be perfect. Kaz, is this the bike that we saw a bunch of those spy shots on? Uh, they, it was on like the back of a car. I think that was a carbon front end. Is this the same thing? Yeah, but that would have been part of the development of it. So basically there's this bike, this is the Shore, and this is their Enduro race bike, kind of purpose-built for that, 170, 170. And they also took, they kind of did it backwards. What they learned from developing this bike, they've made a frame for their downhill racers. So there is one out there that looks similar to this, but that actually has more travel, and it's their downhill frame that they're testing with their World Cup athletes now. So um, that one has a different shock length, so it can get more travel than 170 mil. So those guys on the World Cup aren't racing. We're going to have to do another high pivot podcast before the year is out. All these new bikes. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and we're going to get this one in this, this range will be in the upcoming field test because I only have a, have a handful of rods on it, but I really want it to go up against the other bikes. Um, so yeah, that's okay. happening. So let me, let me ask that question again. Now that we're talking about three new high pivot bikes between the Norco range, the Jekyll, and that cabins, what are you choosing for your Enduro race bike? I do try to remember. I almost forgot. There's so <laughs> <Yeah>. many bikes. <laughs> well, yeah, the Dreadnought came out this year too, but we've got to review that coming a little further down the line. Like Seb Stott has that. But um, out of all those so far, I think I'd pick the Norco range just because I really like the way that it, like the, the way it rides best. But I will say that there are certain Enduro courses where it could almost be too much bike just because some of those like super tight um tight tracks in Europe and things, I think maybe a, a bike like the site, like Norco's shorter travel, non high pivot bike could be easier to maneuver and to ride all day. But like for a Whistler race, I would definitely pick the range. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if we'll see those, uh, the Gary twins. And I think I saw Henry Fitzgerald on the start list as well. Who's on the Norco team. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they'll all be racing the range tomorrow. I, I think so. Yeah. I would imagine. They would be the, the place in Italy where they are now. It looks like it'd be pretty good for it. Like there's some strange Euro turns, but I think it's got some faster, rough stuff. So I think it'd be good. So last week we thought we spotted a SRAM seat post. And then this week it's a new disc break. Just like last week though, this might not be as exciting as it first seems. Uh, in the Whistler bike line or the lift line, we saw a new break. And while most of it was hidden by a plastic cover, there was an external hose splitter that made us think there was actually two calipers underneath the cover. Kaz, why would SRAM switch to two calipers when one does the trick for most of us? Uh, they wouldn't switch to two calipers, I don't think. But they could test two calipers at once, possibly, um, or test some kind of other thing. It's hard to say with how covered up this was. But uh. okay, I'm gonna, I want to take a stab at what I think it is. Mm-hmm. It could be two things. One, it's just an easy troll. Two, I think they might be looking at fluid paths. So if you look at brake calipers... At in other sports, a lot of times they're taking different fluid paths, like into both sides of the caliper. And if you look at those hoses, it's split and it looks like there's two lines going in there. 
I don't know. Maybe could be that. It could also be, I got a, a message from some, a guy who's in, in the industry, but not related to SRAM or, or any, anything like that. But he was saying he thought maybe they took two of their road bike brake calipers, like two rival calipers, and mounted that up. And that would give you a, a four piston brake, basically, with two different calipers. Oh. And so they could do some testing that way. Like some early testing for a super lightweight four piston setup. Something like that. Or just, you know, even testing like the, um, like the caliper, uh, sorry, blanket, or the piston compound or something like that. So some yeah. sort of testing or they're just trolling us. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think they troll us every now and then. They probably I hope do. so. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I would make some. <laughs> me crazy too. I troll but, me every day. Yeah, we just talked about it for five minutes. So there's your five minutes of mentioning. But we'll see Sometimes that. we troll people too, you know, it's return to the favorite. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Crankworks just wrapped up in Innsbruck this week with its usual mix of pump track, speed and style, slalom, all sorts of other events. I want to focus on the slope style. Emil Johansson, who took his fourth Crankworks title in a row, with an Oppo 360, bar to downside whip, regular and Oppo 360, double down whips, a front flip bar spin to tuck no hander, and more. I, I don't even know what half those words mean. Yeah. They're pretty you hard push to push all the too. buttons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you push, push all the buttons on your video game controller. All the and cheat codes. Yeah. <laughs> and then Nikolai Rogatkin finished second with an Oppo cash roll. The level is really high at the moment. Uh, there was no Canadians. In this is that field. a Corona-related thing, though? Are they not allowed there? I, th- I don't think so. Who... Not really competes much anymore, right? Yeah, and yeah. Reader as well. Last year, even before coronavirus happened, he said that he was kind of stepping away from the high intensity of slope style. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know how how Reader and Semenuk would slot into this field with those two. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if you know we had all of those top guys in in the field to see how they would all do. I don't know how Semenuk would do, but I would much prefer to watch him ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could just do like a style run. I'd like a style run more. Than it's before. crazy, isn't it, Kaz? It, like, okay, I just want to say it's ridiculous what they can do. But at the same time, I mean, we used to see so many people watching slope style, and now the numbers are really low compared to what they used to be. And part of me wonders if that's tied into how progressive the riding has become and how, like, not relatable it might be you know like it's amazing but at the same time i want to watch guys do like a huge whip over like a big jump and i don't know kaz how do the numbers compare for like fest series compared to like crankworks coverage it's hard to say because crankworks has so many events so i don't know it's, true. Like, it's not really fest fair, is like yeah. one thing and then Wait, fest really, now there's dark yeah. fest so that's like the not in the fest fest thing the anti-fest remember, fest yeah that's the, but that's the one that could use social media then the other fest can't use social media i can't remember oh, so many rules <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not sure yeah yeah i agree with the slope style like i'm it's it's insane what these riders can do but i have trouble relating also it's yeah there's so I, much going on now Side story, I remember years ago at Crankworks Whistler uh, when Anthony Massari was just coming out and I was up in the Crankworks, in the pink bike booth watching Crankworks. It was packed, like tens of thousands of people up there. These riders are doing ridiculous things. Do you know who got the biggest cheer? Anthony Massari when he just aired out of the quarter pipe higher than anybody else. People just want to see everybody jump higher and farther <laughs> you know <laughs> um, i have to say there was the uh the women's dual speed and style competition they introduced that 
a couple years ago, but this was the first time that we saw Robin Gooms actually did a flip and Vaya was, you know, sending techno handers every run. Um, so it was the first time we saw that in competition in the women's speed and style. And I thought it was pretty, pretty awesome to see that progression after formation to see those women coming into that event. Um, yeah. And then also uh, in the downhill race for the women's junior category, uh, this, I can't remember her last name, but her first name is Vanessa and she's 15 years old and she would have placed fifth in the elite women's category and Valley hole won that race. So I think there's an up and comer there. We're going to do a getting to know with her, uh, this week as well. The kids are fast. The They're kids so are fast. fast. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> super, super impressive to see that. So very cool. Lastly, we got to touch on Tom Bradshaw and Christina's bikepacking adventure that went up on our YouTube channel this week. I don't know if you guys watch it. I thought it was hilarious. They had a budget of $60 Canadian to spend to get them out for a night of bikepacking. And you know what? You don't need all the latest and greatest gear to get out there and explore. Although Tom looked a little tired. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if he actually he slept. slept. <laughs> he only brought a towel. <laughs> he had a yeah. pool floating and a towel to sleep in. <laughs> and I was like, how did you get all that for $60? And Christina got this for $60. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you guys, have you guys bike packed before? Uh, no, I, I'm so far over camping that I, I have no interest in camping. When I go bike packing, I... My version of bikepacking is packing my credit card and staying at a hotel. <laughs> yeah, I never bikepacked either. I'd be interested to, but you have to get stuff. But now it's $60, though. Maybe I'll go bikepacking. Yeah. You know, yeah. I my thing is, Kaz, I don't want to ride a bike fully loaded with, like, sleeping bag and racks and shit. Like, I want to ride sporty and get to where I'm going, you know? Yeah. But, like, I've seen, like, Joey Schuessler's done trips before where he brings his stuff and then kind of, like, base camps and then does some yeah. rides around there and packs up to it's moderately appealing to me, but I don't know. I kind of like going home after two. Yeah. Me too. yeah. I did a trip last year in the Chilcote and it's usually we do like a light trip and we stay in one of their cabins, but last year the cabins were closed. So we carried a tent and sleeping bag and stuff. And it was definitely a like heavier bag. And we did it all in like a backpack because we didn't have the frame bags are just a little bit complicated on a mountain bike with any suspension and 29 or wheels. So yeah, it was definitely you know, about the experience, not so much about the ride quality. And I had, yeah, I borrowed a, the sleeping bags are like the big part. So I borrowed a lightweight sleeping bag from my aunt and uncle. So that was, uh, that was key. Cause otherwise like it's a big pack and it, it's heavy. All right, let's move on to questions. And the first one is from Pico Poco. He says, Hey guys, seeing Mondraker, including suspension data acquisition stock on some bikes, do you think there is a use case for automated suspension setting recommendations? He says he's working with neural networks and he already has a concept. He just needs more data. Kaz, we had a SAG system, specialized had, what was that called? Uh, AutoSAG. Oh, AutoSAG. <laughs> Clever name. <Yep. laughs> I should have remembered that. Uh -huh. uh, but I know, I, I, I don't think you were a fan of that, AutoSag. I think it made a lot of sense for people. I mean, most people don't check their suspension sag before they go riding. So I, th I think that makes sense. He's obviously talking more about damper settings, like an automatic, automated thing. Do you think that's going to be real life one day? I don't really see a need. And then like, he kind of goes on his questions, or in his questions saying that lots of people struggle with the the clicks on their forks, but 
the thing is most of the forks out there these days, it's hard to make them feel bad enough that it's affecting your performance in a noticeable way. I would say like really your rebound, you could, if you turned your rebound all the way off or all the way too fast, that could definitely affect it. But like all the other clickers, they're more fine tuning than everything, anything. So the people that are obsessing over like one click of high speed, I don't know if that's how much help. I just don't think, I don't yeah. think it needs to be automatic. It's it's nice to have all those adjustments, but at the end of the day, I don't know if you need to keep adding electronics and automated setup to it. A bunch of suspension brands have apps to help you with setting up your fork and shock, and I'm pretty sure that almost nobody uses them. <laughs> yeah, I think once people set their stuff up, it is you know it's set and forget for a lot of people, which is fine because once it feels decent, like there's not it's, a ton it's of not fine, Kaz. You should need to check it. It's got. I think perfect. people definitely if the would check it on like i know norco like recently they have a really cool uh on their website like how to set up your suspension based on like what kind of rider you are mm -hmm. um how heavy you are and your height and everything and i thought i thought they did a good job with kind of setting up so that people would actually use that that's their ride line thing i've heard good things mm -hmm. about that I, yeah yeah it does a pretty good job and it does for like even your i think you can select your riding style or like your mm -hmm. weight bias basically so it gets yeah. pretty in-depth. They thought a lot about it, which I think that's definitely helpful when companies do that. I'd rather see a company a company provide that kind of information rather than nothing where you like don't have any starting point. So mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, but as far as automatic. Yeah. Or it just makes such a big difference to how the bike rides if it's set up properly. It's like, ah, oh, this bike sucks. It's like, no, you didn't set up right. Here, let me help you. <laughs> there you go, Pico Poco. Not to shit on your automated suspension setting recommendation, but Kaz doesn't like it. Wait, what are neural networks? Is that in your brain? I don't that's know. What yeah, that's what I thought. Elon I was like, thing. he's working with that right now. <laughs> okay, if my suspension oh, wow. is like a chip in my brain, I'm all in. Like, <laughs> you, I can think you about put it, a chip in your brain. <laughs> yeah, if I can firm it up by just thinking, I want that. Because oh, I'll probably be able to do other cool stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> Never turn the knobs, just close your eyes for a second. <laughs> yeah. <like, "Yarr." laughs> all right. Next question is from Everything Coming Up Millhouse. I love a Simpsons reference. He wants to know what things he should be focusing on when looking for a new bike if he's not able to test ride it. He says, as you guys ride so many bikes, what do you find makes the difference to how it feels? Geometry, suspension system, etc. Or can the numbers be misleading? Uh, can they come together to be greater than the sum of their parts? Kaz, what do you think? Yeah, numbers can be misleading. Sometimes they're inaccurate. Just not all geometry charts are correct, but... I mean, if you're buying a bike without um, without test riding it, I would definitely look at the geometry just to get a basic fit idea. Like you just want to make sure that it sort of fits you. And then after that, I'd probably start looking at price. I mean, suspension system, you know, if you're going from a reputable brand, most suspension systems are pretty dialed these days. Like you'll find people that'll talk your ear off about how amazing a DW link is and the same, someone else will say horse link. And at the end of the day, you can have a great time on either one. There's not, you're not going to, miss out by going with one versus the other, I wouldn't say. But yeah, I think geometry is the best place to start just so you get it in a general range and figuring out how much travel you're looking for. So I think, yeah, suspension travel and geometry are the two filters. And then from there, you can kind of go in parts and all that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I would I would say, I would tell everything coming up Millhouse that, I mean, travel doesn't, we say this all the time now, but travel doesn't necessarily define the bike. So, I mean, obviously... Nowadays, Kaz, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm looking for a 150 millimeter bike. You know, I would say 
I'm looking for like a long travel trail bike or something like that and go. And I would show you a 150 mil bike. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) But you might also show me, you might also show me a 135 millimeter high pivot trail bike has, you know, depending on. I mean, yeah, you can go either way, but you just got to know what you're, what you're (laughs) looking for. Like you're not going to ride a hundred and. 20 mil bike as your enduro race bike. You could, but you probably be better suited to something more travel. Yeah, Lee, you will. That's Mondaker. <laughs> <laughs> Double pinch flat right out the way. <laughs> um, the other thing, obviously, you want to look at are those reach numbers and the seat angle. And then if you have friends, maybe they have a bike with a somewhat similar reach number and just sit on their bike and see if it feels like home. Not a bad strategy. All right. Next question, and our last question, this is from Scion644. He says, he'll probably get negative props for this, but does anyone else think that slopestyle gets more boring every year? Yeah, the tricks are bigger, bar spins, tail whips, what happened to Supermans, heel clickers, T-bogs, knacks and cans? Kaz, we were just talking about this. Um, Doesn't look like we're the only one. Yeah, it would be cool. Maybe they could do like a, a vintage trick like exposition or something. <laughs> That's what it's you know, come like, to. Are we that old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like people can do big nothings and stuff just like as a throwback run. Or they should start doing that. You know how sometimes they, they win before they take their second run? Yeah. That should be a rule that if they do have like the, the win in the bag before their second run, that second run needs to be all vintage tricks. Like just all the cool classic things. I, I just want to see Kate Edwards do whips. Did you see that, that Instagram yeah. post? That yeah. was insane. Yeah. Well, what about chaos? Do you see yeah. chaoses? Yeah. Who won? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. too. Yeah. I'll watch that. I Maybe like that's what that. I'm thinking of. I get them confused. <laughs> well, well, Kate, Kate crashed. Went, yeah. <laughs> Kate did a full like 100 degree whip and then just landed at the 100 degree mark. Yeah. Like, or let's see, no, 180. And then bounced down the ledge. I don't know what he did. Yeah. He just landed fully sideways. It's like he w- turned all the way almost backwards and then just stopped turning. I think his shirt that's got caught in the saddle or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then Kate went like beyond the. Yeah. Yeah. Or chaos went beyond. Yeah. ridiculous maybe yeah. the thing with slope style is people don't like you watch it and you can't process it quickly enough so you don't feel smart that you can like say oh that was a t-bock <laughs> or that yeah. was a neck you know so slope you're like oh, i don't know what that feel was dumb. <laughs> yeah or knowing opposite versus regular like i yeah. don't know what handed these guys are like yeah so you can't yeah because yeah, you need like, to know which which foot forward or which way they're going to spin yeah. to begin with for them yeah, to go so you opposite, can't talk right? to your friends intelligently about the run no, after no. the run so you just don't <laughs> want to talk about it right like, you're like oh, yeah. they did cool things but i don't know what any of those things were <laughs> he did the flippy spinny whiz bang wow great. that was crazy but which, which one i don't know <laughs> yeah we're so old <laughs> <laughs> all right from slope style let's move on to our discussion and today's talk is all about the good and objectively terrible bikes that Casimir and I have owned over the last 30-ish years of mountain biking. It's always fun to look back and laugh, but maybe there's something to be learned from our list of questionable decisions, Kaz. So, Sarah, I've got you here to judge these things. I was thinking at first maybe you'd want to judge them by how much you'd want to ride them today. But then Not I thought, hey, yeah, exactly. I think that'd be your answer for every bike. You don't want to ride them at all. So instead of that, we're going to do our own version of Kiss, Mary Kill. First, we're going to do, you could either trade it for an Xbox. That means that you definitely don't want anything to do with this bike. Yeah, so you're going to list it on the PB buy and less sell. Than an, less than an Xbox, because like I don't know if I've ever played a video game. So. 
<laughs> You've never played a video game in your life, Sarah? Uh, we used to have a neighbor. We'd go over like once in a while. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't play video games. <laughs> have you ever been to an arcade? We should go to an arcade sometimes. I like arcades. Oh, I've played the thing. Yeah, that's fun. Where the, I don't know what it's called, where the ball goes up. And no, a ski ball is not a video game. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like with the paddles, you know? <laughs> pinball? Pinball. Yeah, pinball. yeah, yeah play pinball. <laughs> Pinball's awesome, but that's not a video game. But. No, doesn't count. Yeah. So, have you watched Star Wars yet? Uh, no. <laughs> Don't reveal all my secrets, guys. <laughs> uh, need to make your homework list again. <laughs> it's so long. I, I just I just gave up on the homework. <laughs> all right. So, let's get back to this. We're going to judge the bikes in three different ways. Sarah's going to decide either she's going to trade the bike for an Xbox on the PB Buy and Sell because she wants absolutely nothing to do with it, or... She's going to hang it on the wall because it's a classic that's interesting, but maybe maybe you don't want to ride it today. Or she's going to take it for some laps in the Whistler Bike Park. So you got three decisions, three choices there for each of these bikes, Sarah. Kaz, I wanted to start off with you. In 1998, you had a classic spooky June bug. Why did you end up with the June bug? Because I did a paper route for so many, so many years, I saved all my paper route money, and I bought it with my paper route money. Do you remember and how much it was? I feel like I paid two grand, oh, which wow. was a lot of money back then for a hardtail. Yeah, how it was pretty you? expensive. Uh, let's see, ninety-eight, six, seventeen, uh, yeah, somewhere around there. So the yeah. the the spooky June bug that was an aluminum hardtail, uh, pretty burly though, wasn't it? It was meant for some uh, rowdy riding. Medium. It was like East Coast. It was kind of more their cross country ish thing. They made the other, like the the metal head, and they had some other ones that were more for like hardcore hardtailing back then. But this was yeah. more their cross country bike. It was a cheaper one. There was another one that was like a higher end one, but this was cheaper for some reason. Um, but still not that cheap. And yeah, it was pistachio green. I was super proud of it. And it was my XC race bike. I got a SID on it at first, the first generation SID. I think it was the blue Ooh. one. Titanium but, fork bosses. It was so flexible. Like it's like almost unrideable. I didn't weigh much. I still don't. But that, back then, I bet I was like 140 pounds. But I could feel it flexing so much that it just felt super sketchy. So then I took it off, sold it, and bought a Marzocchi Z2. And then I was a lot happier. That's a very different fork. Yeah, it was great. That had all the oil. And this, I mean, it was still not a ton of travel, probably like 80 mils back then, right? Like, What sort of riding were you doing on the June Bug? Cross country riding. Yeah, I did yeah. like, well, East Coast cross country. So kind of like, rocky trails and i'd pedal i mean i just pedal my ass off all the time i think i, I did a 24-hour race on that bike and just that was my there's a super good east coast race series back then so you could you could race every single weekend all across the state up in new hampshire and mount snow i did mount snow nationals on that bike i think crashed right at the start line how sweet <laughs> yeah <laughs> this one's definitely going in the museum hanging it on the wall like especially since it's the first bike that you you know really owned bought it with That's paper room it. money like yeah do you still have it no i wish i did i <laughs> sold it i don't really keep bikes i just i've never had room to keep bikes i guess someday if i have a place that i own in the garage i could probably keep more bikes but i usually get rid of them to space wise but this is one bike. i do wish i still had yeah what do you think the reach was on that bike it's probably real short the bottom bracket was probably really high yeah. yeah i remember it felt felt comfortable like i don't even know like back then yeah i was just excited it had like grip shift x-ray grip shift oh those were amazing excited about it yeah <laughs> it had like this the good feeling grip shifter like mm -hmm. the higher end ones had like different ribs or whatever there so you could 
grab it better. It's good. Kaz, I measured the reach on the Brody 8 ball, which is from around a similar time. So it's a medium Brody 8 ball. And the best I could figure is the reach on that bike is 390 millimeters. Yeah, I could see that. Especially, and these bikes had 26 inch wheels too. So, but it felt right. You know, at the time, thinking back, I don't have any pictures of me on it or anything because. <laughs> I just remember pictures from when I was a kid, but I remember it felt good. So I'm just going to keep those happy memories in there. Yeah. Don't yeah, go okay. back and measure it. Good thing you don't have yeah. it anymore. You can just, yeah, like, exactly. it lives on in your brain as like this amazing, amazing yeah. bike. Where at the time, like, <laughs> yeah. And Spooky was like an East Coast brand and they were like kind of out of that like hardcore scene. So I was way into that. So it just kind of fit with what I was into. Did you have a jean vest? I didn't have a, a jean vest. vest. No, no. Hardcore, like some kids, like some of the New York punk kids would wear the jean vest, but like, the hardcore scene wasn't as much about the jean apparel. No. Yeah. Racing cross good. country in my jean vest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now we should probably go to Levy's list of old bikes. Let's talk about dun, your dun, giant, dun. Yeah. <laughs> giant <laughs> ATX 970. Yeah. Tell us about that. It was my first full suspension bike. So before that, I had a, a steel hardtail with a dual track fork from Sears with it had like a sparkle paint job on it that's what I started mountain biking on but I really just pushed it up gravel roads and then would coast back down the gravel roads until I crashed really bad and then I got the 970 that's um this is the bike that giant modeled after the full suspension bike that RC made for John Tomac which yeah which means that you would think it would be good yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was so long ago. I don't know if it was good, though, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that thing. yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Yeah, it kind of looks like the so many bikes looked exactly the same as this back in the day, like the shock right underneath the yep. top tube. Yeah. Quadra 21 fork. I remember that fork. Yeah. That Quadra 21 R had no fork seals. So it would f like literally no fork seals. And it had rubber accordion boots that you would slide down over the lowers. And then after every ride, I would pull the boots up, flip the bike upside down, and water would literally drain out from the fork. No damper, yeah. just some MCU bumpers. And then, uh, yeah, V-brakes and a seat bag. Yeah. This is back in the day where, like, you would read the debates about uh, fork booties, if they were necessary or not. Right. That was, like, a big deal. Like, oh, do we need booties? This fork doesn't have yeah. them. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This bike also had my first clipless pedals on it, Kaz. So there's a lot of falling over. Yeah. What yeah. kind of clipless pedals did you start with? Uh, at one point I had frogs on this oh. bike, but I think I just started with like just inexpensive Shimano something or others. Yeah. yeah. I had no right. idea what I was doing. I'll include yeah. a photo of me wearing tall white socks riding this bike in the article. Yeah. At least they're tall. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would look. not want to ride this bike. It looks terrible. No. <laughs> what do you think, though, Sarah? Would you hang this thing on the wall or would you trade it for an Xbox? I mean, I feel like it's old enough that it, it needs to go on a wall somewhere. Maybe I not the specific one that you had because it sounds like you like really abused yours. <laughs> yeah but, no, it didn't have a good life but maybe yeah a bike that looked like yours but you know it was tidied up a little i think would definitely belong in a museum hang it on the wall okay. shine it up i'll take yeah i'll take that yeah. i think that was that bike was i mean it's nothing to look at but it was probably an important bike as far as dual suspension bikes go that's fair anyways let's go back to hardtails casimir because you had a 1999 kona explosive I remember that bike. Didn't it also have a rigid fork on it? No, uh, this came with, this came with suspension at that time. 
I, I mean, this explosive has been in the lineup for years. So they had like, uh, they had all kinds of, uh, yeah, there's a, di- a different, the early explosives for sure had rigid fork, but this was like their scandium race bike. Um, I feel like it might've come with a SID too, but I ended up with a Z2 on it again. Cause I was way into <laughs> running that Z2 on everything. You made one important mod to that thing, Kaz. What was it? did i do i had it had riser bars i can't remember if it came with those or not that could have been <laughs> what i not I, I there's no way it might have that was a time where like you're right at that era like 99 2000 things are starting to switch and kona was kind of like the pacific northwest brand yeah so there's a chance that those were stock riser bars i'm not sure i can't remember with the cross brace bolt on cross brace no it didn't have a cross brace oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it had like those bronze avid uh Alt, no, ju- not juicies. What were they back then? Whatever. V brakes were, man, it sound like such old people talking. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I had the V brakes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> hey, but, that, Kaz, that ATX 970 I had when I first got it, it came with, it came with regular, what are the cantilever brakes? It didn't yeah. even have V brakes on it. Yeah. I mean, the first mountain bike I ever had, which I didn't really put on my list because it was a Diamondback Topanga SE. I also bought paper route money, but that the reason <laughs> I bought it was because it had anodized blue Tektro cantilever brakes Slow-co. and that sold me. Yeah. Sick. That's why I wanted it. <laughs> you traded then I bent for Xbox already? Yeah. That one, the frame bent, like <laughs> little me somehow bent the frame and then the rear wheel would fall off when I was racing. So I'd have to get off, tighten the quick release and basically jump on the back of the frame to tighten the quick release down so that the rear wheel wouldn't slip out of the dropouts. Not dangerous yeah. at all. No, so I eventually... Very different that's, times. That's, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> that's why I ended up selling it to get the Spooky. And then I sold the Spooky to get the Kona just because, I don't know, when you work in a bike shop, you always want the next thing. So, Sarah, what, what would you do with the explosive? I mean, I'm debating between selling it for an Xbox or putting it in the museum. I definitely don't want to ride it. It had a glow in the paint job. Okay, it's definitely going in the museum. <laughs> yeah, that one's going on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> my wall's getting really full though guys i guess if we, yeah, we have yeah. unlimited space okay they're all gonna yeah we're just hoarders we just, like, <laughs> we're just hoarding <laughs> this is exactly why i brought you on here though sarah it's because you're nice yeah we're like three bikes okay three are going in the museum guys <laughs> makes you feel good about your choices when you work yeah <laughs> all right we're gonna go to the next one on levy's list he's got so many classics but this one oh well, this is gonna be a good one too the narco vps yes first gen vps that was yeah. a bike that you saw everywhere. The Whistler bike park—it just like took over the took over BC for a few or a handful of years. They're just everywhere. Yeah, mine was the red and silver one. It has it was that big monocoque front end with the embossed maple leaf, and I got just the frame. So I built it up with a four inch Travel Z one, the coil sprung thing. That was like obviously the biggest game changer. Um, yeah, and a hodgepodge of stuff. It had Gazzalotti tires on it, Kaz. I, for some reason, I also took the fork brace off the Z1 and thought I could ride it. I was like, well, the inverted forks don't use fork braces, so I took the brace <laughs> off. Unrideable. No. <laughs> Anyways, that thing saw all the skinnies, all the wheelie drops in the woodlot, um, but it ended up it ended up dying. My house burnt down. And oh. yeah, and the bike. So I lived upstairs in the top floor in the attic, and it was huge. So I had my my bike and my gear up there with me. And then our house burnt down, or most of it burnt. And I remember being like 16 or 15 or whatever I was, and standing in the driveway watching the, th- the fireman throw my VPS out the second story window. Uh, how do you even lift I, it up? <laughs> exactly. But it was, it was all melted and looking weird Aww. and stuff. Yeah, I would love to have that thing. Yeah, I feel that's like that's a definitely a classic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I feel like when I worked at Norco, that was, you know, the bike that everybody was nostalgic about. And we would yeah. bring one out to the Radfest event at Silver Star every year. And people would just, you know, stop and stare at it and, you know, take pictures with it. And yeah, it's crazy how a bike can mean so much for so many people. Yeah, I think I think for a lot of people, especially here in BC, that bike reminds them of free ride times, you know, of like going to session some jump or drop for like all day and leaving just broken in half. Is this when your ankles went when you had your Norco VPS? Oh no, I still I still had ankles when I had the Norco VPS. <laughs> That's that happens later in life. Yeah, and yeah, once the hardtails come in. on the hardtails. <laughs> Uh, so you would keep that one, eh, eh, Sarah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going yeah. to the museum, along with the other three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this museum is going to be great. <laughs> Kaz, did you ever get to ride a VPS? I never did, no. I remember seeing them. Like, they didn't really... I was living in Colorado around, well, not at that time, but a little after, and we didn't really see them out there. But the first times I went to Whistler, I definitely just noticed that everybody had those bikes. Yeah. Classic. Actually, right, maybe Kaz. I even want to ride this bike. Maybe I'll put it in the ride category, because I've never actually ridden one. Yeah. Narco has a bunch still. Last time I was at Narco, I, I was like in one of the corners and they have like four of them. Yeah. It looked like they're rideable. I feel like it would still be rideable. Maybe I'll you ride know, that Sarah, one. I vote that you should ride this because I think it's part of history and it will also, it's also like, oh, bikes today are fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you should ride it and then trade it for an Xbox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kaz, let's go to your full suspension bikes, two of them. You had two Rocky Mountains in a row. In 2003, you had that Rocky Mountain Edge. That was a pretty traditional looking double diamond shock under the top tube full suspension, yeah, bike, wasn't it? It looks, it looks basically like a beefy version of that ATX that you had. I think it was a yeah. five-inch travel bike. I think they were kind of billing it as like free ride-ish. It had a coil shock, but all yeah. lots of bikes had coil shocks back then. Like No matter yeah. what, they just like full suspension with coil. I think it had like an 800-pound spring. I feel like the leverage ratio was off on it. I mostly, I mostly just want to ask you about the tires on it. So tires are a topic uh, that Kaz and I like to disagree on sometimes. I definitely am more open-minded about some tire brands. And I think I know why. Kaz, you were running some GX tires on this bike and also some WTB Weirwolf's horrible (laughs) those were so bad like i didn't know i mean i I had those gx tires and i was stoked i think it was yeah just you know when you're working at a shop it kind of whatever's trendy someone starts running them and tells everybody else so i think my boss had those gx tires and actually worked pretty well but then he got in those werewolf tires and though for people that haven't seen them because they don't exist anymore for a reason they have kind of like a triangular tread pattern like and the sidewall like and I just rode them and they were the worst they were not good at anything except getting flats all the time (laughs) so bad I think they were really good at those grassy fields that we're sessions in North Carolina all the time, or sorry, North North California all the time. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But for where I was at, yeah, those werewolf tires were not good. But, uh, not so much. I think this is why backpacks went out of fashion is because people didn't need to carry like all the tools and all the tubes and a spare tire in their backpack anymore. So, oh yeah, yeah. This time, like, we're, yeah, you were wearing a big backpack when you were riding this bike. <laughs> oh, huge! Like in the early two, early to mid two thousands. Like you'd go on rides and people would get six, seven flats. Like you had to carry all, all everything. I used to bring <laughs> multiple DH tubes with me. I would bring a derailleur hanger in my backpack for my own bike, and then I would bring a wheels manufacturing universal derailleur hanger 
This is back when quick release was around and it used to clamp underneath your quick release. It would get you out of the bush. Nowadays, I don't even bring Allen keys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just walk off. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Kaz, you went from that to an RM7, which are two very, very different bikes. One of them looks like a normal mountain bike. And then obviously the RM7 blew a lot of minds in 2004. Tell me about it. Yeah, that was, I rode, the RM7 was actually like the first kind of downhill bike that I ever rode. There was this, this ride outside of town that was a, a big ride. You would never take a downhill bike on it on purpose, but the demo driver from Rocky showed up. He had this thing in the back. I'm like, I'm taking that. And this ride goes up to like 12,600 feet. It has a 45 minute hike a bike. And I was like, yeah, the RM7 is going to be perfect for it. So I like, got <laughs> this thing to the top. Yeah. Got this Always thing to the, the top. Always the optimist. I know. And then made it and then rode down and was like, oh, I need one of these. Cause that was the first time I'd been on like big, powerful disc brakes, the most suspension I'd ever ridden with. It didn't it just like, it didn't rattle loose though when you were riding it. Not on that ride. I oh, bet if I'd ridden one you. more ride, it would have. Yeah. They then, tricked you. Then once you fall down the RM7 hole, you learn that those bushings and the main pivot just doesn't ever get tight because the back end just to twist it loose. So then I learned you could like shove some washers into the main pivot and then clamp it down and tighten up. We do like everybody at the shop had one too, because we all thought we needed downhill bikes and the shop was a Rocky dealer, obviously. So everybody still it, thinks they need downhill bikes. I know. Anyway, well, I think yeah. so. either way. Yeah. So then there'd be like nights where we'd all be in the shop, just redoing the pivots on our bikes and trying to make them not have play in the back. Definitely end. trading this for an Xbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I broke it too. And again, like I wasn't that big, but it like, the swing arm, right? shock mount. I broke it a shock mount. Oh yeah, which I think what a lot the of leverage ratio like, like on that is like an inch again, stroke, inches like, travel. <laughs> yeah, I think you had to run like another eight hundred pound spring on that too. So they weren't hadn't figured it all out back then. But I Wade will Simmons say though that it was amazing looking, and I mean it wasn't reliable, but it was at the time. I think it was a pretty important bike. Yeah, I had a junior T on it. I was excited. Oh, I tried a monster T. Yeah, I tried a monster T for two rides, but I was too little. Like, still too little for monster T. Like, I couldn't. Yeah. The front end of the bike was so heavy. I just felt like I was nose diving off everything. I was like, I can't handle this. I still wanted one too back then. Kath, yeah. I weighed like 90 pounds and I wanted a monster T. I ended up with uh -huh. a shiver at some point. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, I think so. you're definitely going to want to trade this one for an Xbox. Yeah. It sounds like they wanted it to be a museum piece from the beginning. You know, it wasn't actually, it wasn't quite ride, not, ride friendly. Definitely don't want riding. to go riding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's move on. Your list, Levy. There's so many good ones. Let's go with, uh, I guess you got another giant. That's a pretty classic too. The ATX yeah. downhill bike. It's the shop that I, my local shop that I ended up working at forever. They sold giant. I think they still do. So that's how all the giants happened. Yeah. And Kaz's we'll shop sold Rocky bike. Mountain. Yeah, mine was a rocky. It's how it happened. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you buy totally. what you can get a deal on. So this yeah. uh, this giant ATX DH was amazing. So this was Kaz. This was the one with that monocoque. Well, technically speaking, I guess it wasn't a monocoque, but like a box section front end, and then I had that little skinny down tube. So I got this one with insurance money from the time that my house burnt down, and it was a replica of the bike that Miles Rockwell rode to his 2000 world championship victory in Sierra Nevada when Nico flatted, which is amazing. Um, yeah, six inches of travel, one of the few off-the-shelf downhill bikes at the time. I think maybe this and that Cannondale Super VDH were bikes that you could just buy off the shelf, downhill bikes you could buy off the shelf. Six-inch travel boxer uh, with 32 mil stanchions that I stripped all the pinch bolts out on, of course, for the 20 mil through <laughs> axle. Um 
square taper bottom bracket. Kaz, it had an AC chain guide on it. And between the square taper bottom bracket that was always bent, the race face cranks that were always bent, and the crappy spring-loaded AC chain guide, there was a season of racing where my chain came off every single BC Cup downhill race I went to. Oh, brutal. <laughs> what a waste of money. Uh, <laughs> racing and you're just like, oh, my chain came off. I don't know what you I was thinking. You didn't win? Aaron Gwynn? No chain? Didn't matter. You yeah, just like, taking the chain I, off at the top of the course. I didn't just coast to victory. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> it had a quick release back end too, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. We ended up sawing the chain guide mounts off the frame which was very scary for me at the time so we could mount a black spire chain guide which mostly solved the problem i also want to talk though about the formula disc brakes it had do you remember the formula closed system downhill brakes yeah i never rode them but i've seen them yeah so Open system, everybody, basically what that means is it lets the, the system compensates for heat buildup. So the brakes don't get really firm and your lever pull stays the same. They don't pump up. A closed system has no way to compensate. These formula brakes, they were a closed system, but they had a dial on the reservoir, Kaz. The idea being that as you were riding and as your brakes pumped up, you could turn the dial out to compensate. Whoa. <laughs> not safe <laughs> no so, so you're one-handed like twisting yeah. this thing as you're going yeah. down the hill as you keep breaking yeah exactly wow <laughs> it had uh you you would manually adjust the pad position with these like really tiny 1.5 millimeter hex keys but i'm just a kid so i stripped them and then literally fluid would leak out of the hole and the brakes would stop working <laughs> oh god it had cujo downhill tires and sun mammoth rims and a Tioga DH seat? Oh, yeah. Sarah, you got to keep it. this bike. <laughs> well, I wish I still had this bike. Definitely don't want to ride it, but it sounds like it's got a lot of like cool parts on it. Maybe we should just keep the frame. <laughs> yeah, the frame has a cool, the frame is definitely a classic looking frame. I think Rob Warner raced this one. I feel like yep. he did some video a while yep. ago where he kind of found an old one again, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah we'll put the frame on the wall and, and the brakes, we'll trade those for... A game for the xbox <laughs> yeah i i would be interested to ride this thing six inch travel downhill bike from 2000 back to back with a modern enduro bike obviously the enduro bike is going to be way way faster and more capable but i think it would be an eye opener i'd be curious actually, to ride it back to back to a cross-country bike <laughs> it oh, has a 67 degree head tube angle it's like what <laughs> okay so do travel. you guys <laughs> do you think, Casimir, do you think you would be faster down the hill on like a pure XC race bike like the new like Cannondale Scalpel or the new uh, S-Works thing than this bike? I think I would. I, I think I could. I don't know. I'd be good. I'd be the real fun. I'd be a fun guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that having ex, the extra travel, even though the geometry is whack on it, I think that the extra travel would help you. If it was like a really rough course, I think you'd still benefit from all that travel even though the geometry is not ideal are we just going to end up with a museum full of our old shitty terrible bikes now this one i, I feel like i want to ride this because this is like you know the years where yeah you know like yeah i think it'd still be fun i haven't ridden one in years it'd be interesting years but like i was riding fast. full xc bikes probably like a hardtail xc bike at this point like at least i was riding by 2008 you know <laughs> but i had no idea bikes like this existed I just, 
Yeah, yeah. Right. This is the, judging by the amount of repairs that Kaz said he did, I don't think it should have existed. <laughs> yeah. It did have some issues. But the hardware store is right across the street from the bike shop, so it's so easy. I could just go get all the bolts and put them in, and put steel people, bolts in. People refer to that that Sunday as the JB Weld Sunday, don't they? Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. But the things were like the suspension worked well ish, and the geometry was good. Ish. This was good ish. Yeah. It was all good. Yeah, it was, I mean, like for the, but for the time, it was amazing. Like that just, I feel like it was a really linear suspension curve. Like, but we all thought that like bottoming out was good for some reason. I can't remember, but it was really cool. That bike was great. I would. Yeah. Yeah. I'll ride one again one of these days. And I feel like it would also make me appreciate all those like New World Disorder and Earth and all these other videos that, you know, you watch them now and it's not as impressive as watching a modern day video, but it's because they're on different bikes as well but the stuff is still really impressive but i feel like would have a, a new found appreciation for those videos yeah so you'd, you'd want to ride this sunday yeah we're riding it all nice. right good choice would you what about, what about my old super eight, <laughs> oh, super eight that was a classic that's the one with the big hole in the in the yeah. uh, swing arm i had a this was a second generation super eight so not the smaller tube front triangle one. Kaz, I took out a loan for $7,200 <gasps> for this bike. Whoa. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That's Whoa. so much money. Like 18. Wait, what year is this? What year? Like 2000. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea <laughs> yeah, when that was. Yeah, put all the years. Yeah, you can put all the years in here. <laughs> it's I, a lot I, of money. It would have been like 2001 or two. Yeah, sometime around. Or no, then. no. 90, how old are you? I don't even know. Wow. You're 18 yeah. and 99. I think I don't know. It's a blur. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> no, it's a, this it's bike a was insane. It had a White Brothers UD one eighty inverted fork on it with a remote reservoir and a floating piston in there. Super moto, uh, huge swing arm, and then to adjust the geometry, it had this big sliding shock mount thing on it. Um, and I built it up with all the fanciest stuff. I think it had like an XTR rear derailleur and. Hayes brakes, of course, and an Easton magnesium stem that corroded about 18 seconds after I took it out of the packaging. Do you remember those? <laughs> they were like gold colored and really oh, expensive. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but that poor bike, I ended up breaking the swing arm on it and sold it to a friend. And then he broke the swing arm and then he welded a bunch. And then he gave it to a friend. And I think that friend painted it white in the way that like you take some newspaper and wrap it around the fork seals and then just spray bomb the rest of the bike. (laughs) Yeah. And then just to expedite this process a little bit, then after that, I traded that for a a Santa Cruz super eight because I wanted something a little bit less travel and more free ride. I had stopped racing. I was doing all these races. Oh yeah. And then I got the bullet. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I traded that thing for the bullet uh, which was like a six inch travelish thing. And I, I put a, a super T fork on the front, but there were no stiff fork springs available in Canada whatsoever for like years for this fucking super T. And it would bottom out just by looking at it. It was absolute trash. So yeah, I ended up, I got a Dorado, I think for that thing. And then I ended up breaking the Dorado and yeah. Anyways, Sarah, you, you're going to want to trade these bikes for Xboxes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was $7,200. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And now it's worth $8. <laughs> Not even. Kaz, oh, as a shop rat, though, getting that Dorado, opening the box was amazing. Like carbon yeah. tubes, inverted fork, 
Incredible. This was the the one with the um, not the TPC plus. So it was the first gen that was slightly better and more reliable. But it had that foam compensator in it that broke down. So then it wouldn't get full travel. And it eventually crushed the aluminum damper rod. <laughs> All right, Kaz, let's go back to you. I want to ask you about your 2009-ish transition Grand Mall. First of all, imagine naming a bike after a seizure today. I don't think you'd be allowed to do that. <laughs> it's the worst, one of the worst bike names ever. Like, it's so bad. And even if, yeah. like, like in Spanish, mall just means bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is my bad bike. <laughs> so I'm going to preface this by saying that today, transition makes some of my favorite bikes. When the Patrol first came out, Kaz, that was a that was a favorite of ours when that first came out. The spur right now is absolutely ridiculous. You just built up your own spur, which speaks for itself. But guys, back then, those bikes blew. <laughs> they were terrible. I liked the Grand Mall. I liked it. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It looks like you could probably. I bet there's still someone making a bike like this from a catalog. That it, it is looks, so like ugly, Casimir. Well, I, it was ugly. Mine was white too, which doesn't help. Oh. It was like a matte white paint job, so it just turned like kind of dingy brownish. Yeah. But still, it, I put a 66, Marzocchi 66 in the front. I had a front derailleur so I could free ride this thing everywhere. I had, I didn't need a knock scope proposed because I had a straight seat tube, un- un- uninterrupted seat tube. This so is could, peak Casimir, everybody. Peak Yeah, Kazimer I could make right the seat here. super high. I think I could get like about the longest post I could find. So I could <laughs> jack it all the way up, get full leg extension. So what were you doing on this bike, Kaz? What kind of riding were you doing? Skinnies all day, every day. Yeah. This is like, the hey, like every single what's that? Where were you living? Here in Bellingham, Washington. So okay. every single weekend we would drive up because it was like yeah, uh, let's see, yeah, I was still in Washington. So every weekend we would drive up to the shore, ride the shore, we'd ride the wood lot because the trails weren't as good here in Bellingham as they were there at the time. Yeah, um, now they're. I used to ride the wood lot all the time around then. I wonder if you and I were ever at the wood lot at the same time without knowing it. It's fake, probably. Yes. Probably hitting up, uh, what was the trail? That, Gold the trail or Platinum? Platinum. Platinum was the, my favorite trail yeah. in the whole world. For so long. I would drive up by myself and ride it by myself like midweeks in the, yep. like, when no one was around just because I loved it so much. Do you and remember then the gate? On Jekyll. <laughs> That's awesome. To get up there? The, no, the, the, trail, gate. the gate. There's a trail called Oh, yeah, the on the gate. left side. Yep. Yeah. Now we're just going like super esoteric trail names. But yes, yeah. I do remember. <laughs> it had a, do you remember it had a skinny with a teeter-totter at the top of it? I yeah. fell off the skinny on the teeter-totter, like I was going on the teeter-totter, fell off, caught my shoulder, and it rolled me over and I spun and landed on my back from that freaking teeter-totter. <laughs> the best part, Jeez. the platinum, platinum Trail had a jump where you jumped over a skinny. That was yep. the best. Yeah, like and that. then the the triple in there, or no, uh-huh. sorry, the six-pack. Yep. And then Everybody the, the right now, they're listening, they're like, we don't want to hear about the trails. We've yeah. never seen these trails. <laughs> Everybody just look up Platinum Woodlot, and there should be videos. There was like the roller coaster to drop, but yeah. either way. And so that's what I was all about that stuff back then. I nice. bet we did. We probably were in the same place. I rode Eagle a lot back then too. Yep. Yeah, I went so there a few probably times. probably were there somewhere. But yeah. Um, yeah, this is my free ride machine. And then I had to go finish school in Colorado. I had like two semesters left or one semester. And if I didn't go back, my course catalog would expire. So I moved back to Colorado for a little bit so I could take 10 years and or finished my degree that I'd started 10 years earlier. Um, and so I brought this bike back there. So then I had this thing in Colorado too. And it was not my cross ideal. country bike. <laughs> not ideal. Not cross country <laughs> bike for Colorado. So I just pedaled the shit out of it at like, you know, just high altitude Wait, trails. Was it reliable? It was pretty good. Yeah. I don't think I, I mean, it's built like a tank. So I didn't break the frame at all. Any shock bolts? Um, I don't think I 
did. I think overall that bike was pretty low maintenance. Like I had it for three seasons, which is more than I usually yeah. keep bikes for. And it just kept going. I don't remember any major issues, which, you know, is pretty simple. It didn't hold a water bottle, so I had to have my camel back all the time. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> Worst bike and, ever. <laughs> but I think it I think it worked. I had a pretty like just solid basic build kit on it. So yeah, that was a good like a workhorse of a bike that went a lot of places with me. So I yeah. I did like it. I'm still Sarah, trading it for an Xbox. <laughs> I don't even think you're yeah. going to get an Xbox for that thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like it's funny because it's it's so easy to like make fun of everybody's bikes, but all these bikes that we had when we had them, they were the best, oh, yeah. and we just loved them. And then yeah. when you look back, like, oh yeah, I don't want to ride that anymore. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I, let's see, so yeah, well, that's my grand mall. But let's go further. Let's go a little fast forward in your history. And you had a Canada Profit Four Cross. Yeah. When everybody thought four cross bikes were important to have yeah. the four cross racing we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I wasn't doing any four cross racing, but what I wanted was a short travel bike that I could ride with my buddies who were on their downhill bikes. Forward thinking, Casimir. Huh? Mm, yeah. Down country. Down country before it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this thing was pretty neat. It was, I want to say it had maybe five inches of rear travel and then a five and a half inch lefty up front, carbon fiber lefty and a Marzocchi Rocco. Remember those? Rocco? Rocco? Oh, yeah. Coil yep. shock in the back. This bike, this is when I started to do very weird things to bicycles, Casimir. <laughs> so... The carbon fiber lefty had Manitou TPC plus damping internals and then a single coil spring. And I had imported all these, you got, you know, Mojo from the UK, Chris Porter, he had started a company uh, called Mojo and he was making cartridges for boxers. So you could swap out the stock boxer damping cartridge and put this in. And I thought, fuck, like I could put one of these in my lefty, right? So I did. I had to get custom spring perches made. And then the spring, the single coil spring, I would take the damper top cap off and then slide the coil spring down over the damper rod and then screw the cap back on. And then I had custom uh, adapters, threaded adapters with threads on the inside and outside for the bottom cap and the top cap for me to install the damper inside the lefty. And I ended up with, uh, I think it was probably the best fork at the time. It was amazing. The best damping, super light, super stiff. Um, yeah. I also rebuilt the Roco shock because those bikes had a falling rate. They were made for an air shock and obviously it's not going to work. I would just, I had like a 900 pound spring. Like it was ridiculous. And I couldn't even ride the bike off a curb without a bottoming. So I had to change a bunch of stuff in there. And anyways, <laughs> It broke. What happened with it? <laughs> we all knew how I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. How did your fancy fork break? I think there's a good story there. Um, so there was a, a step down jump. I don't remember how. I was going to say it was huge, but the truth is, I don't remember how big it was. And there was, I came down to hit it, and there was a guy standing on the landing, and I saw like just the top of his helmet as I was coming up to the takeoff. So I just grabbed a handful of brakes. It would have been super bad if I hit this guy. And I ended up landing like in the middle, flat landing, and then like rolling into the, the backside, the face, sorry, the face of the jump, of the landing. And it forced the mojo cartridge through the top cap of the lefty. Like it just pushed through the threads. I think it would have killed me if it didn't hit my handlebar, Kaz. Oh, can you imagine that? Oh. It just goes like right through your eye, like that dude, uh, the train oh, yeah. explosion, that story you see when you're a kid. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And anyway, so I had to put the stock internals back in and the fork got a lot shittier. But uh, yeah. that bike was, that's when I started doing really weird things to bikes. Um, and man, I wish I still had that thing. It's not safe though, Sarah. Don't ride it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll put it in the museum. Sounds like a museum piece. Megura brakes? It had all sorts of neat stuff on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely. Jeez. Definitely not riding it. Putting it in the museum. Kaz, you you made a big change. You from you went from that grand mall to something pretty nice. A 2010 yeah. Stump Jumper Evo. A little upgrade there. I bet that That's was good. a big change. That was nice. Yeah, because I was working at I'd, I'd moved at this point. I had brought the grand mall back with me to Washington and was working at a bike shop, specialized dealer. So I got that, yeah, Stump Tripper Evo, which, you know, shorter travel thing, but slackish at the time. Um, might've still had a front derailleur, but I think jumped so well. And that's when there was lots of little kind of fun, you know, pedally jumpy trails around here. So that was great. I had, I managed to not swindle, sort of swindle a specialized demo at the time. So I was able to have two bikes because I, I bought one bike and then my boss, at the bike shop, we were able to have like staff bikes. And then he was like this, he just didn't really pay much attention to the staff bikes we were getting. So perfect. <laughs> yeah. We all got like real nice staff bikes. We had to give them back. You know, they're like basically like long-term loaners, but still like to have a downhill bike as your staff bike that you just, that's the, the ideal the loner, isn't it? It was sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so at this <laughs> point, I had a, <laughs> yeah, it was really good. So yeah, 2010, 2011, I had a stumpy Evo as my kind of do it all trail bike and then a demo. So I finally had two bikes, which was good. Obviously, on the demo, though, I put a dropper post in a wider range cassette because I still pedaled the demo as if it was a... Yeah. Of course, you put a dropper post. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they everybody... were just coming out or like more <laughs> common at that point. So I got the one with a little lever underneath the seat. Was it a Crank Brothers? No, that'd be a Like KS. a Joplin? Oh, okay. Uh, kind of, but KS made one too. Like, uh, I don't know if it was a lever, what it was called back then. But yeah, so that was a good era, I'd say. Both those bikes are rideable. And good. Was, this, was this a first gen demo? 2011? No, that was, uh, I can't remember. I think there's, they've been around before that for sure, right? Man, all I picture is Matt Hunter in Kamloops doing that corner up against the bank or that huge gap to wall ride in yeah, Rome. This was, yeah, 2011 was the cool one with like the two, um, two seat stays. Yeah. It was good. Nice and reliable. Yeah, pretty reliable. It didn't break and it had a lot of pivots, I remember, but I don't think it, it didn't <laughs> cause too many problems. The short, the head tube made it a little tricky for like if you wanted to shuttle on the back of someone like a North Shore rack because oh, yeah. there's like barely any clearance between the head tube and the fork, but that's a different thing. Yeah. Hey, but Kaz, yeah. It's, it's almost like as you got bikes that were more normal and sorted and worked really well, I went a different direction and went towards <laughs> bikes that were very questionable and strange. Yeah, your list just gets weirder and weirder. Mine gets more like, oh, that's a decent bike. You're just like, yeah. what did you do? Like, yeah, I was like, oh, about... I recognize all these bike names. And then I'll look at your list. I'm like, wait, what? What happened yeah. here? <laughs> well, there's Here's some... a name you'll recognize. Yeah, that you'll recognize this name, Sarah. But let's talk about that Trek Remedy you had, Levy. <laughs> what did you do to that? <laughs> there was a first-gen Remedy. So I've actually had... So this is when I started at Pink Bike. So to be fair, Kaz, you know, these were test bikes that we had for a long time. Uh, not actually bikes that we owned, but I ended up having all of the remedies and this was the first generation remedy and I rode the shit out of it. Um, I ended up keeping it and I stripped the paint off with towel strip, which is basically cancer in a bottle. So we used to like, 
I'd get a bike box and I'd put the frame in it and I would just spray the shit out of it. And then I would close the bike box and leave it in there for a day. And the cardboard would get eaten <laughs> through. Like yeah. It w- I remember it stripped a bunch of the paint off the railing in my apartment and my strata got super angry at me. Definitely going to get cancer at some point. But anyways, it looked really neat. It was a bare frame. <laughs> and then I had a girlfriend at the time was a bit of a, a bit of an artist, a doodler. And she had a, she took a permanent felt marker and drew all these like, sort of like abstract arty leaf things on the front of it that was really neat. But that's not the worst. I put a Hammerschmidt on it, Kaz. But the bike... Hammerschmidt. Yeah, the bike didn't have any ISCG chain guide tabs to mount it on. So I had to get some tabs tacked on. So I used an old bottom bracket, obviously, just hold an adapter in place, had the tabs tacked on, and then used a Hammerschmidt facing tool to bring the bottom bracket shell back down to the correct width, Otherwise, your bottom bracket bearings would be preloaded. The thing wouldn't spin. And then I had to cut up the backplate for the Hammerschmidt to fit the chainstay so it wouldn't get caught in the chainstay. And then I didn't want to shift it with a shifter because with Hammerschmidt, you don't actually shift it that much. It's not like a derailleur. The idea was I wanted the security of single ring, but I wanted an easy gear to go up and then I wanted a hard gear to go down. So I used a Megura fork lockout mounted on the underside of the top tube to control shifting into the overdrive gear of the Hammerschmidt. It worked amazing. You're like a slope styler before slope style. Like right? the slope style guys were running their shifters on yeah. the down tubes. Yeah. yeah that's exactly you, it. You started it. Ahead of my time, everybody. Yeah. Just it's a forward thinker. Do you have a yeah. picture of this? I'll, I want to see the doodles. <laughs> I'll have to find some pictures of it. I'll put some pictures in the article. Um, the frame ended up breaking though, because of course, Casimir, like all of our bikes, it was too small back then. And I had the seat post up too high and it broke the seat tube. Oh uh, yeah. Like it, that's a dumbass mistake. I feel like ninety yeah. percent of these bikes that you guys have on your list, and I just counted, you have like eighteen of them. <laughs> yeah, like There's... most of them ended up breaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah, that's that's I mean, what happens. Back yeah, then, I mean the though. good thing was we all rode a lot. Like we, we used all these bikes got until used they heavily. broke. <laughs> until they yeah. broke, and then you get yeah, like how we skip the whole hardtail era of of Levi, though. That's... Yeah, we yeah. for everybody that's listening, <laughs> <laughs> we thought this would be about an hour, and like. Or maybe not even an hour, and then we'd have to talk about something else. We've got through maybe a third of these bikes. So <laughs> if you guys like what you're hearing, we'll do a second part with our other bikes. Because I've owned an orange 222, 223, 224, and they were all set up very poorly and strangely. Multiple strange hardtails. Kaz, you've had some other weird bikes too. So if you guys like what you're hearing, we'll do a part two of this where we talk about our other strange bikes. But I think we should wrap this up with comment gold for now, eh, Kaz? Yeah, I think that's enough talking about our, our little bikes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's enough embarrassing ourselves, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Our first comment gold, this is from Sleeping Awake. And this is on, Casimir, this is on your new Jekyll review. He says, down tube storage comes as a shock. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Can you fit anything else in that gravity cavity? Like, could you fit like an energy bar or something like a Mars bar beside the shock? It'd be hard to get in, but if you could like slide it in and tape it to the bottom of there, you could probably fit something skinny. Um, Our next one is from Big Tim. This is on Christina and Tom's bike backing video. Uh, He says, video, WTF, 
I want this kind of content in interpretive dance, Casimir. It seems like we post a video, everybody wants an article, we post an article, people want videos, I can't win. Yeah, yeah. is this comment gold? I feel like I'm just kind of annoyed at it, because like every single yeah. article that comes up is like, we can't please the people. It's like yeah. the new, this is a session, it's like, no, I want this as an article, or I want this as this. Yeah. We're going to start releasing things in Morse code, it's coming soon, Morse code translations for all articles. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> that way you can listen, and it's going to be really special. Does Google translate translate to morse code um should be able to maybe we'll, we'll yeah. figure it out yeah the next podcast so you can yeah you can read it yeah we'll put some morse code in the article here if we figure it out all right stay tuned everybody episode 70 in morse <laughs> code <laughs> our last comment gold this is from woody 25 now this is on g atherton's crash he had a monster crash if you watch these videos that he's doing He's going so huge and so fast. A lot of times there's a ridiculous amount of exposure. Most importantly, G-Man is okay-ish. He's going to be okay. He's badly hurt, though. He's got broken femur, ribs, eye socket, Casimir, nose, radius. He broke something called an ulnar. Where's an ulnar? What is that? Ulnar, isn't it? Isn't that your wrist? <laughs> I broke oh, one I don't of those. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Anyways, he's going to recover. He's going to be okay. If you haven't seen his face, he made an Instagram post. He looks rough. G-Man, get better. But Woody25 has comment gold on that article. He says, in related news, their Eurasian tectonic plate was admitted to the Cardiff Hospital this afternoon with a suspected fractured black mountain from G. Atherton crashing. I like that. Hurting the mountain. That is comment gold. All right, everybody, that was it for episode 69, Casimir and I's Strange Bike History. Let us know if you want another part of this because we got a lot more dumb bikes. And tell us in the comments about your own silly, questionable bikes. I'm sure you guys have bought some strange things and you've regretted it. Let us know in the comments what those are and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 